Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Bubba and the Big Bad Blues. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. your problem now. problem now
on the line right now. Hey, Bubba, how you doing? I'm doing good, Richard. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm hanging in here. Now, this is the first time you've been on our show, and we always give our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are as an artist. And the best way to do that 
is by your journey, how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Bubba and the Big Bad Blues, and of course, you as Bubba. Well, as far as I go, I started out playing drums when I was probably 11 or 12, and uh, my evil stepmother talked my dad into getting me to quit because couldn't handle the drums. So I'm still a frustrated drummer even to this day because I, I absolutely love the drums. My brother played guitar, so I started picking up his guitar. It was the only other thing for me to play, and uh, he would uh, beat me up for playing his guitar. But after a while, I got so good at it, he let me alone, and in no time at all, I exceeded his ability. And I was completely self-taught uh, the, the first five or six years I played. And later on, I took a few lessons, and the lessons essentially, you know, guys were just telling me what I was doing. They weren't really teaching me how to play. And this went on. I played, I played in bands since I was 14 years old, mostly rock bands. I used to have long hair all the way down to my waist. I played heavy metal and speed metal and rock, but I always loved and listened to the blues and I literally taught myself how to play by playing the blues and somewhere when we got around to about the 90s I just decided I was going to abandon uh, all the rock and roll and the rock that I was playing and I decided to focus on the blues I had never fronted my own band I was always just the guitar player but I had noticed that I could sing better than a lot of the front men of the bands I was in, so I decided to start singing. And that was it. I, I got a couple of buddies together and we started a band. We started getting gigs and we had several different names in the beginning, which I cannot really recall. They were silly names. And then one night somebody said, you need a better name. And I, I came up with Bubba and the Big Bad Blues. And then we got just a lot of gigs off of that. And that is how the name just kind of got stuck on me. I couldn't change it after that. We were we were getting too many gigs with it. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this new release. What was your inspiration for putting this together? Well, I'll tell you, Over, I'm always coming up with song ideas. And the the process I have is that I, I ascribe to the Willie Dixon method of songwriting, which is bar napkins and scraps of paper. And I know that for a fact because my my departed partner, Big T, Terry Derone, was a friend of Willie's, and he said Willie had a filing cabinet with a drawer full of scraps of paper with song ideas on them. Uh, even after he died. I don't know what happened to all those song ideas, by the way. So I write things down, um, and then the music part, sometimes, a lot of times it happens when I'm driving, and I, I drive around with the stereo not on. And while I'm driving, my brain is just craving some kind of music, and so I start thinking about what I would like to listen to and 
and I start coming up with the song ideas in my head while I'm driving. And then I'll usually grab my phone and I'll use the voice recorder to beatbox an idea, either a melody or a lyric or a guitar hook or whatever. Later when I get home, I'll play it on the guitar and I'll re-record it and I'll write down the words and, and, and work on it. And so this latest record, when I got around to making it, I reached into the Bubba archives I pulled out all the scraps of paper and all the notes and I put everything into the computer. And then I got, I used to have a handheld voice recorder, a little tape recorder back in the 90s. And I had figured out how to transfer those to the computer. So I put all those voice notes on the computer and I went through and categorized them all and organized them and I went through and listened to everything. And I still had many great song ideas that were some of them from the 90s that never made it onto my first record. And so I just started to work on the songs and finish the parts that needed finishing. And I was motivated because I got laid off of my job after 15 years in 2018. I decided I did not want to go back to work before I made a new record. And I also, in the process of rewriting or finishing these other songs, I also wrote a bunch of new songs simultaneously. So some of the songs on the, the record are old ideas that I finally finished, and some are brand new ideas that I had just written. And that that was the the interesting part. Okay. Now, um, you had mentioned that you utilized your phone to kind of capture some of these ideas while you were driving. And I, I think a lot of songwriters, you know, despite you know the uh, na- the bar napkin you know analogy and and how you write, uh, have adapted technology as part of their toolkit. What are some of the other tools that you have in your toolkit that you use when you sit down to write? Well, for a time, I, I had a, um, a system set up on a PC, and I was using a program called Reaper, which is very similar to Pro Tools, except it's, it's a program for the PC. And I had a DAW, and I would record things in there and make tracks out of it. Um, and that's all very cool, but I found that um, the quicker and easier and more direct way was just to record it on the phone and write it down on the paper and then put those two together. You know, I, once I got the lyrics perfected, I would re-record just using my phone with me singing and playing. and. You know, technology, if you have the time and the money, um, it's great, but it's also it's time-consuming. And sometimes you spend more time fiddling with the computer than actually writing the song. That's just my take on it. I, I have the sense have abandoned that system, but I have plans to build a new one. And this time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a Mac and, and do it with Pro Tools because literally every human being I know is using Pro Tools. Yeah, I don't know. I you look around before you start digging into Pro Tools because I find uh, 
because I have a studio here. I've been a recording engineer since the early 80s. And, you know, in my studio, I have Pro Tools. I've got Cubase. Uh, and I have uh, Studio One. And I tend to um, find that Studio One is a much more robust, solid uh, program. doesn't crash on you. And it's really uh, a great workflow, especially for songwriters, you know? So, you know, you may want to take a look at it. And, you know, with their Sphere program, you know, it's $14.95 a month, and you get everything they make, you know? So it's worth looking into. <clears throat> now, well, we'll see. Yeah. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, going into the studio and recording what do you do when you get in that environment that helps you capture the sound that you're looking for? Well, I'll tell you, there's the way I would like to do it, and then there's the way I end up doing it. My desire is to do it all live, where we're almost all of us in the same room with things just go-boat off and, and semi-separated. Um, because I like the sound of the room more than the sound of the close-up mic I always have. Um, and the, the mix that I always point to for every time for reference is Keith Richards' first solo album that was produced by Steve Jordan. I mean, that thing just sounds amazing. And they recorded it on a, in a studio stage you know, with the whole band in the same room. And it just sounds so organic to me. I mean, that's my desire is is to get a really live sound. Um, I've always felt like the band always sounded best live, and I always just wanted to capture what we sounded like live, in the you know, but have a studio quality to it. Right. But in reality, it's not that easy, you know. You've got to have a pretty big room to have a band like that especially if you're going to have horns the way I did on this new record. So, you know, there's a practical side that you have to embrace, too. Um, and the, the studio that we did this record in, half of the tracks were done at Ultratone Studios, which is owned by Johnny Lee Shell of the Phantom Blues Band. And they have an incredible sound. And they really have their, their stuff uh, together there. Um, and that's you know, even more important part. When you go to the studio, go to one that you know has made records that you like the sound of. Right. And so that part was very easy because I, I love the sound of the Phantom Blues Band records. Okay. Now, um, of course, once you get this recorded and, and ready to go, you have to create your team uh, to get it out there, get it out to radio, get it out to uh, press and you're working with Betsy Brown of Blind Raccoon. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Well, before, uh, when the record was done, um, and I'll mention that, you know, we started making this record right when the pandemic hit. Late February of 2020. And we were all very disconcerted by it and so we decided to push through and get the ultratone tracks done 
And then I then did the other half of the tracks at Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is a whole other part of the story. But um, Tony Bronicle said, when you're ready to release this, talk to me and we'll talk about, um, you know, who to get with. So I already had Betsy on a very short list of people to talk to. And there were a couple of people on the list, too. And then so... She was on my list and at the very top, and so when Tony recommended her, I said, well, that's, that's a no-brainer because I had already kind of pre-decided that I liked what she did. Um, in fact, I love the fact that her website is so put together and it answers all the questions that you would have up front. She's very good at that. Yep, that she is. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about... Um the lineup on this who's playing on it so this was an interesting thing the reason i did tracks in la at all uh was because i wanted some of the guys from my band on this record and most of the guys in my band were all in la um had that not been my focus i might have been tempted to do the whole thing at sweetwater but uh what happened was I told my old buddy and piano player, Rick Solom, who was on my first record, playing piano and organ, I said, I need horns on this new record. So he said, get Joe. And he meant Joe Sublet, because he's played with Joe for many, many years. He says, just get Joe, and Joe will help you work the horn thing out. So that was my plan, and I had another studio in mind. Then, before I talked to Joe, I went to a gig, uh, Anson Funderburg gig. He had come into town, and my bass player was playing bass for him, uh, Doug Mug Swanson. And I had sat in with Anson before. And in fact, he had, he had asked me if I was coming to this gig and, you know, told me to bring a guitar. I show up to the gig, and it was just packed with a who's who of blues music in L.A. I mean everybody was there so I knew I wasn't going to get to sit in but at the end of the gig Tony Bronigal had gotten up to play with the band and Tony's a superior master drummer he sounded amazing and as I told you before I love the drums I listen very closely to the drums when they were done he was walking back toward me and it dawned on me hey wait a minute Tony plays drums in the Phantoms Blues Band. Joe Sublet plays in the Phantom Blues Band. I, and Tony's a producer. Maybe I should just talk to Tony. Mm-hmm. So when he got close to me, I I grabbed him. I said, hey, man, I'm Bubba, you know. He does, and he doesn't know me at all. And I just told him, hey, I'm friends with so-and-so, and I want to use horns on my record, and you, you're a producer, and I think I need help producing the horn tracks. And you've got a studio, and you've got Joe Sublet and the other horns, and, well, you know, he doesn't know me at all, but he said, all right, well, here's my card, and why don't you, um, let me take a look at you, and, you know, online, and I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. And then I figured, that's cool, you know, he doesn't know me, he's going to go look me up and see what he can find, and, well, I guess he liked what he saw, because he called me back. And then he said, well, I want to hear these songs, what are these songs like? Well, I had versions of those songs all recorded on my phone. Just me singing and playing acoustic. 
So I just sent him four or five of those. And he called me the next day. So I figured he must have liked them. And he said, yeah, I think we can do this. Let's do this. And that's kind of how that happened. So Tony, Tony Bronigal plays drums on three of the tracks. Um, my old buddy and old drummer, Sean Norse, plays on one track. And J.R. Lozano, my current drummer, plays on two of the tracks. And I'm just talking about the tracks at Ultratone in L.A. And then on bass, I have my old bass player, Mike Berry, who is one of the best bass players on the planet. He played on three tracks. And then I had John Baz of the Blasters, who has been playing with me off and on for years. He played on the other three tracks. And then we had Mike Finnegan on organ, which I can't tell you what a tremendous blessing and to have him involved at all. His playing is unbelievable, and his sensibility in the studio was, was fantastic. He didn't just come there to play the organ. He listened to every song. He had an input, and he exerted a certain amount of artistic idea over the songs. Um, in one case, he told me on one song, he said, this needs a bridge right here. And he, you know, came up with what he thought the bridge should be. And I said, yeah, am I going to solo over that or what? He goes, no, you're going to go home and you're going to write a bridge lyric. And I said, I am? <laughs> yeah. So I did. I went home and I thought, man, I've got to pull a bridge lyric out. And I wrote the bridge lyric for that, and that bridge lyric was absolutely perfect. I even impressed myself, and one of the best compliments I've ever got was Mike Finnegan told me he really liked the lyrics of my songs. That's great. Um, the piano was mostly Rick Solom, again, my old buddy on piano. Some of the piano was also Mike Finnegan on, in a couple cases. And then we've got the horn section. We got Joe Sublet on sax, Les Lovett on trumpet, and Richard Rosenberg, also known as La Bamba, on the trombone. And that's a great horn section, let me tell you. And when I saw them work in the studio, I mean, absolute consummate pros in the studio. And the thing, the other thing was the horn arrangement. I used to front a 10-piece acid jazz funk band called All That with five horns. So I've worked with horns, and I thought maybe I could do an arrangement. But let me tell you, we had La Bamba do the arrangement, and his arrangements were unbelievably good, especially on the song Drifting. It just blew my mind, I mean, how great his arrangement was and how great the horn sounded. I mean, that is a dream band, in my opinion. You know, the blend of the Phantom Blues Band and, and guys from my band. It was fantastic. I, it was a great experience in the studio. Nice. And that was just, that was just six tracks. <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about um, the industry. You know, uh, I mean, the elephant in the room is, is that the consumer... 
has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. Um, they they they're getting more. They're paying less. So for the consumer, it's a win-win. Unfortunately, uh, one of the the results of this is that they no longer look at recorded music as a product to purchase anymore. It's now a service. You know, they can look up an artist, listen to everything they ever did, and choose what, you know, cherry-pick what they want in their playlist, and it doesn't cost them a dime extra. How has this shift in the perception of recorded music affected you as an artist? It seems that... um it seems that you know, as a um, an up and coming artist, it's a revenue stream that I'm not going to have. Uh, with my first record, I sold thousands of my first record all on my own. I sold them through CD Baby Pro worldwide. Uh, people from every country in the world bought my CD from CD Baby CD Baby, and, and they shipped them out all over the world. And I at least made the money from that. Now it's not. We're not sure if you know the CD, the physical CD market is going to survive. Although I'm, I think the people who listen to blues are, are people who are used to buying records and buying CDs, and that they like having um, the copy because that's that's the, how we all grew up. I still have three thousand albums in in my crates, um, so I've not let go of my records and. Those things are things that I, when I pick them out and I look at them, it, you know, I'm I'm connected to them spiritually. These are the records that I played, that I learned to play guitar to, that all the great memories of my youth are connected to. It's a physical thing too, and so I'm not sure if we can have that same connection with just a streaming service of a song. Um, and I well, think that may be the worst part, less, even worse than the lack of the, the income from selling the physical product. Well, you know, the CD, I mean, let's face it, you know, you can't buy a CD player anymore in Walmart, Best Buy. They just don't carry them. Um, the only place you're going to find one is in a thrift store or a Goodwill. Um you you don't you know if you buy a new car you're not getting a CD player, so once that hardware disappears the software is not far behind, you know and we can't depend on a uh, aging market to sustain a whole genre, you know what I mean we have to adapt to what's happening in in technology wise. One of the things I did see as this streaming has taken over the industry as a way to consume music is the record companies went in they they carved out a huge piece of that pie um for themselves and for the upper echelon of the industry and left the independent artists with this you know take it or leave it kind of mentality when it came to the streaming royalties that were left over for them and it, that's a real shame because one of the things that resulted in that is this diminishing of the music industry's middle class. You know, that yeah. that whole stretch of, of musicians and support kind of people, like 
engineers and studio owners and side guys and you know like the people you brought in to do you know to do your arrangements on your horns these guys pay the bills put food on the table and 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 shoes on the kids feet by their profession as musicians that has become extremely difficult to do now because there is that whole middle class is disappearing if there is no value to the recorded music then it you can't go into an expensive studio hire expensive musicians or musicians that you know that require a, a decent wage and and you know and expect to recoup anything you know uh, I, I absolutely I absolutely agree with all of that it's true and you know I made my record I I spent my money right and the money I spent was literally my savings you know the first record I made I told people I go this is my life savings in, in CD form well this new record is it's not all of my savings but it's a big giant chunk of it yeah. And I couldn't have paid the studio or paid the musicians or paid for any of it uh, if I didn't think that there would be some return in the future. And, yeah, streaming, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get a return. I mean, how many thousand spins do I need to get make $100? Right. Um, so it seems like it's become an advertising. Streaming is literally just an advertising space for my music but people you know people are they going to download it or are they going to buy it i don't know so all of it may just be there even the record just may be advertising for my band to go out and tour right pouring and merchandise has really become the the lifeblood of every band now well, even even downloads. People don't download anymore. They don't want to clog up their phones. You know, it, downloads were big when we had dedicated music players, like the iPod or the Zune or you know those, you know those MP3 players that were dedicated to storing and playing music. And I now, still have one. Well, yeah, I know they're still out there, but they're not making them. You know, it's it's just like CD players. You know, they they're not making them. Uh, so now people, the the delivery device that people use to listen to music are their phones. And they don't want to clog it up with a whole bunch of music, you know, because that takes away from all their TikTok video space, you know. So, well, you know, it's true. You know, the selfies and, and, and TikTok videos, they take up a lot of room. So Yeah. So... <laughs> So, you know, people are not um, downloading music anymore. They're not buying it and downloading it and storing it. They're not, you know, using a shelf for, you know, thousands well, of CDs. We, we definitely need to educate and make an argument to everyone on planet Earth that, you know, wave files are 50 megabytes each, whereas an MP3 is only five. And, you know... Analog vinyl still sounds better than a wave file, but you know those CDs and those big fat wave files are ten times the data of an MP3. An MP3 is a little squashed down, compressed music file that only sounds good when you put it in a tiny little earbud. 
don't know about you, but I don't want to listen to Dark Side of the Moon that way. You know, we have to get people to start thinking about quality well, and about fidelity. You know, uh, vinyl. You know, had its had its its um, its time. You know, I still have a huge vinyl collection. I love my vinyl collection, and I love putting you know that on. But I don't love the clicks and the pops and the you know all of that noise floor that we we all had to deal with. Right. You know, and CDs you know eliminated that. You know, and of course we have formats now that are lossless, like the FLAC format and so on and so forth, which yeah. a lot of streaming services are, are going to be going towards. And now we have uh, a chance to change this this dichotomy uh, because there is technology coming down the pike, such as blockchain streaming that will allow for these larger files these these lossless files to be utilized but it will also create an environment where the artist is going to be compensated fairly because there is no middleman there is no company that runs these streaming services they're you know they're a decentralized system you know, and they're saying that these 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 streaming services are going to pay up to ninety percent to the artist. You know what I mean? Sounds good. Yeah, I think so. Now, one of the things that I think is important is when the pandemic hit, a lot of artists went on to the internet, and it really accelerated this world of content creation and social media. Um, Kind of marketing where artists started to realize that the importance of their brand not only as an artist but also their brand as a person you know what i mean taylor swift is always branding herself her authenticity who she is as a person david grohl is is a genius at branding who he is you know as a person and i think that is going to be important as we move towards the future, um, how are you negotiating this world of content creation and social media marketing? Well, that's how am I navigating it? I, I, I'm kind of, I think I do a pretty good job using social media to market the band and the gigs and, and now the new record. Uh, I think I could do a better job. Um, I've noticed some other artists that are more prominent than me, but maybe not super well-known, but I've noticed some that some have started podcasts as a way of creating a brand and promoting themselves. Um, some of them are doing instructional videos for the instrument that they play. In fact, some of them have YouTube channels where they're literally uh, showing people how they cook food. Yeah. I think that's all great. You know, well, just, you can show the public as much of you as you want to or you're comfortable with. Um, you know, you cooking food, you're working on a car, you playing an instrument they don't know you can play. I think that's all good if you want to do it. 
Well, I think um, that's important because I don't think the public really wants to be beat over the head with the sales pitch all the time. You know, um, no. you know, come to the show, buy my music, listen to the, my streams, yada, yada, yada. They want to invest into people, to into the authenticity of who an artist is. You know, it's... You know, if you think about it, we've been in this world of reality shows for almost 30 years now, if you think about it. We've been we've been inundated with reality shows which basically show people at their most authentic authentic or at least at least or their worst. Or their worst. <laughs> but but the fact is is that this is the mentality I think a lot of the fan base is is centered in. And if you look at the internet and you look at social media, that is a broadcast network that has no gatekeepers and has no cost. And every artist has the ability to create their own reality show. Create something that will endear a wide selection of potential fans and bring them into the top of their mar- their marketing funnel and from there they it can get distilled down to those core fans that are going to support you as an as an artist you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think it's important that we do you know that we work towards that because I think that's where um, where we're going to be in the future as 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 a way to market ourselves as artists. It's going to be all about the branding. Yeah, I, I I tend to think more simply than that. Just you know, I don't care what kind of branding you have. If 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 I if I don't like your music. That no brand, amount of branding is going to solve that. Oh yeah, you got to have the product. I want to. Uh, I, I, you know, I want to focus on making the best music that I can, the best records that I can, and then putting on the best live show that I can. And everything else you're describing is is some kind of marketing and promoting that I'm definitely you know going to embrace, but. It's first things first. Before I, I think before I work on my brand, I need to get launch this record that I have and get the band out on the road. And the nuts and bolts are still the most important thing to me. Well, I mean, it's like Coca Cola. You know, you like the taste of Coke, but Coca Cola goes out of their way to brand themselves, whether it's through their logo oh, yeah. or through their advertising or through, and they don't always hit you over the head is drink my coke it's always let's look cool while we're drinking this coke you know what i mean yeah it's only i've noticed the commercials only have attractive and cool people drinking it well that's because we cool people are the only ones who do drink it you know (laughs) well you know I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there an Indie Blues double shot from your release. And uh, you guys out there, just turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun.
out to sea I feel I'm being pulled down Into deep misery I fought against the current I failed to break free Lights are fading as the buoy tolls for me. I'm sinking down. So long Darkness surrounds me now I feel so cold Swallow my life's regret And it cuts me to the bone
looked upon us too Hedge forever as a moment we remember Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, 
makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, honey. Gonna 